please open your Bibles. Luke 13. We've already read our text this morning. We're going to be focusing on verses 18 down through the end of verse 30. The title of the message today is When God Shuts the Door. It's been a number of years ago, but a missionary couple from the United States was visiting Russia and some of the surrounding areas, and they were meeting with some churches. They were going to be in Russia and Romania, and they happened to be in Czechoslovakia, and they were going to be taking a train down into Romania, and as they were preparing to leave, several of the brothers there had warned them and said that whenever you get to the border, that uh, you should expect to be treated pretty harshly. Uh, said that as Americans, that they will, they will probably harass you a bit and uh, could even be arrested uh, just uh, for them to intimidate and to do some background checks. But uh, anyway, so they were prepared for that. They got on the train and sure enough, they made it down to the border there in Romania and uh, the train stopped. And as the train stopped, the guards entered to the train, uh, entered into the train, and began to uh, go and check people's passports and uh, check over everyone's IDs. And when they came to these Americans, it was very obvious uh, that they were uh, that they were American, and they uh, demanded their passports. And they began to speak very harshly to them in Romanian, uh, in the Romanian language, and uh, couldn't speak English. And so they just uh, pointed to their luggage and pointed to them and said, get off the train, and ushered this American uh, couple off of the train. And uh, they begin to, uh, outside the train there, go through these missionaries, uh, go through their luggage. And as they were doing that, they were speaking real harshly to them and uh, just kind of pointing and making gestures. And and the couple was intimidated and, and nervous, as to be expected. Uh, but about that time, a general in the Romanian guard walked up and the two men stood erect and stood at attention, uh, giving respect to the general. The general walked up to the missionary couple and he just sized them up. He was staring at them, looking at them up and down. And he noticed that the woman was clinging tightly to a brown paper bag. Something was inside of it and he pointed to it and he said, give me bag. And she handed him the bag and the husband knew then, boy, we are in trouble now because he knew what was in the bag. She had her Bible wrapped in a paper, uh, in the brown paper bag. And so the general took the Bible out and he looked at it and he began to thumb real quickly through the Bible. And he finally stopped at a particular place and he looked at the woman and he said, you know, American citizen. And he looked at the man and he said, you know, American citizen. And he said, with a smile, he said, and I know Romanian citizen. And he turned the Bible around and he pointed to Philippians 3.20 and he said, read. And it said, our citizenship is in heaven. And he said, I like you. (laughs) And he told his guards, he said, leave these people alone. And they entered back into the train and they left. We're coming into a passage of Scripture today where Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. This is where our citizenship is ultimately at. 
When we talk about the kingdom of God, number one, we understand a kingdom to be a place where a king rules. It is a, it is a kingdom where a king is in charge, where the sovereignty of the king is overwhelming that people. But we need to think a little bit more specific because whenever John the Baptist was announcing Christ, he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. And whenever Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he talks about the kingdom of God being in the midst of you. So he was referring to himself as the king of this kingdom. And so in a spiritual sense, all who confessed Christ as king enter into that kingdom. We become citizens in God's kingdom. And so we need to think this morning as we hear Jesus expounding on the kingdom of God about the present reality of God's kingdom now. He was talking about it presently 2,000 years ago. Remember, Jesus left, and when he left, he sent his spirit, and his spirit abides in his people. And so the kingdom of God is very present but we also need to think that when, about the kingdom this way. When Christ came, he started the kingdom. He inaugurated his kingdom. But he didn't consummate it. There is still more to come. And so we do need to think about the future aspect as well as the present aspect of the kingdom of God. And I think we see both of those here in this text. Let me remind you, the last sermon that I preached, we talked about the woman in the synagogue who was bent. She had a, uh, a, a condition in which a, a demon, obviously, uh, this was an affliction of Satan, where she had been bound for 18 years, doubled over, and God released her, demonstrating that in the presence of God, Satan has no power. And he's uh, demonstrating the power of God's kingdom over the power of Satan. And so following this display of power and authority over evil and the rebuke of those who oppose Christ, Jesus begins to teach. And this is where we pick up in our text. It says, he said, therefore, there in verse 18, what is the kingdom of God like? So he's asking this question intending to give an answer. What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the branches of the air made nest in its branches." I, uh, uh, there should be a picture that you should see here in just a minute about a grain of mustard seed that will eventually look like a tree, that will be a tree. This is the picture that we, that we see. This is the imagery that Christ is giving to us. A grain of mustard seed, so insignificant, so small, so tiny, and yet it grows into a massive, beautiful tree where the birds can fly into it and build nests and find rest. And this is how Christ is uh, describing his kingdom. Now, 
If you've studied Daniel and you've studied Ezekiel and you love prophecy, you'll hear undertones. As Jesus speaks of the kingdom, there are references that kind of take our minds back to Daniel chapter 4 and Ezekiel 17. But in Daniel 4 and Ezekiel 17, the kingdom of God is kind of portrayed as this powerful force that's going to swoop in and it's going to just overwhelm all the nations. And so in many people's minds, they believed that when the kingdom of God was established, that it was, that it was inaugurated on earth, that, that was going to return all glory back to Israel, and it was going to overwhelm all the political systems. That was in their minds. That's, what, that's kind of what, what many people were thinking. But the way that Jesus describes the kingdom of God is not some, some bullying arm of politics that's going to come in and take over. Rather, the kingdom of God, the, the rule and the reign of God in this world would appear very insignificant, small, tiny, seemingly to have no value. The kingdom of God would appear like a mustard seed. This is what it would appear like. This is what, how it would uh, come to be. But it would make a huge impact in the world. It will grow immensely and it will continue to grow until it is reached out like branches of a mustard seed or a mustard tree as it reaches out and provides covering and rest for birds to rest in it. Well, this is the description that the gospel would start small, the kingdom would appear insignificant, but its branches would spread throughout all of the world where it would impact every nation and every language. Yeah, we, need to, we need to hear John 3.16, for God so loved the world. When he says that, what's he talking about? All over the world. And we see he brings that to this conclusion in just a little bit. From the north to the south, to the east to the west, there will be people of every nation and tongue gathered under the branches of this kingdom. People from all over. But the main point that we see in what Christ is saying is that you will not be able to stop the kingdom. It will reach maturity. It will come to completion. And so he continues his line of thinking. Again, he said there in verse 20, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Uh, yeast is very insignificant when you look at it in terms of measure compared to the amount of flour that you need to make a loaf of bread. In fact, ladies, was about one teaspoon of yeast to four cups of flour. And so it's very small, it's very insignificant, and again, it's, it's almost unnoticeable. And this is what Jesus is saying that the kingdom is like. Now, why is he doing all of this? Well, he's doing all of this because there were many who had the idea that the kingdom of God was going to appear as some cataclysmic event. And it was going to be so overwhelming. It was going to be in view of everyone that they would be able to see this. 
But Jesus gives a very clear answer to this. In fact, we need to go over to Luke 17. And in Luke 17, he answers the idea that our own, is on people's minds. Now, let me, let, me, let me pause for a moment before I read the passage. What's the context? Who is Jesus speaking to? Well, he's speaking to Jews. And, and they are the covenant people of God, right? They were, they were of the seed of Abraham. And, and so in their minds, that's, they're, they're thinking of a return to glory, a, a national glory. And so they're thinking this big event. And Jesus says in, in Luke 17, he says, being asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God, they knew. They, they believed they were part of the kingdom. And so they were like, when is this event going to happen? And you can almost hear the smugness in their tone whenever the Pharisees ask Jesus a question like this. And so they're like, when is the kingdom of God going to come? If you know everything. And he answered them, well, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that you think it is. It's not coming like you think it's coming. He says the kingdom of God is, is, is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. You can't even see the kingdom of God and it's right in your face. So this is how Jesus is describing his kingdom, this, this work of God in humanity. While Christ is on earth, he, he comes very meek and very humble. He comes with no physical display of recognition. He is uh, the son of a carpenter, poor and without any display of importance whatsoever. After his ascension, he sends his spirit to reside in the hearts of his people. Very invisible, but yet very impactful. With the story of the bent woman, we see how the kingdom of God is demonstrated through the life of an individual. We see that the kingdom of God impacts one individual at a time and impacts it in such a way that what he did with just this one woman, it was a display of that authority and power where all of the people began to rejoice. There was an impact that was made through an individual. And this is how the kingdom of God works. He works through one life at a time, transforming men and women and boys and girls. It is a small work to the world in their eyes, but it is massive with regard to what God does in the life of an individual. It seems insignificant. You know, a lot of times we, we have to be cautious because a lot of times we think that what we need is we need to do something big. You know what we really need? We need an, we need an American president who's a Christian. And that's what's going to turn this nation to God. Been there, done that, didn't happen. That's not how you turn a nation to God. That's not how you impact change. It is what God does through insignificant people. It seems so small and so tiny. We think, the, we think too big sometimes that we forget that the bigness of God is working in insignificance. This shows us that the kingdom of God does not have to have and doesn't have an impressive appearance. In fact, it seems insignificant, but it shows us something. It's unstoppable. 
It's almost like this. It's so insignificant, the world doesn't even notice it happening. It's just happening, and God is growing through this, uh, his kingdom this way. God is using insignificant people like me, and he's using insignificant churches like ours to reach the world with the gospel. Think of the partners. Think of the people. Think of the video we've seen with Sean and how out of this church and the support of this church and how small and insignificant it may seem that God is going to taking his gospel through this insignificant church on this insignificant corner to the ends of the world. He's impacting change one life at a time. Don't fail to see in this text that God uses insignificant things to accomplish his will in the expansion of his kingdom. Think of this. God used an insignificant teenage virgin girl by the name of Mary who would eventually marry an insignificant carpenter named Joseph whom she would ultimately be the one as a virgin that God chose to place his kingdom within her. And the kingdom of God was birthed in a manger. The entourage of heaven's host didn't show up on the streets of Jerusalem ushering in the kingdom in ways that many thought that it would come. But rather in a no-name town called Bethlehem, in an insignificant place like a manger, where the kingdom of God was born. And from that, it would reach and impact the world. By the way, think of it like this. What place in the world doesn't celebrate Christmas? All from an insignificant town and an insignificant place and an insignificant manger made a huge impact. The gospel story, the story of this one who would come. And this is what Jesus is saying. This is what he's talking about his kingdom. It is, seems insignificant, but it is having a massive impact. Now, Jesus is talking about the kingdom. He's talking about how it's seemingly insignificant. He's not saying it's insignificant. He's talking about its appearance. He's talking about the way that many people would judge what God is doing in the world. But it did cause people to question as he was going along and teaching. Look at what it says in verse 22 through 23. He went on his way through towns and villages teaching this. He's teaching the kingdom of God. And he's journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? In other words, will there be many people who are saved or will there be only a few people who are saved? Well, that's a controversial question. And that's still a controversial question today, by the way. There are people in the world who are known as universalists. And if you ever hear someone who claims to be a Christian and they say that they're a universalist, what they mean is, is they believe that every single person in the world will ultimately end up in the kingdom of God. They believe that every single person in the world will ultimately in the end be saved. Rob Bell, 2011, wrote an infamous book now called Love Wins. 
And in the book that he wrote, he defends his position of universalism where he believes that all people in the world will ultimately go to heaven because in the end, this is how he concludes it, love wins. And so there are those who believe that. They believe that in the end, love wins. And that's what Rob Bell says. That's what many who like Rob Bell believe. But what, are we, what, what, is our, what is our disposition, brothers and sisters? What do we believe? Who do we believe? When it comes to these issues, where do we go to for answers to those questions? Well, Jesus was asked that question, and I think that that's a great place to go to. Let's see what Jesus says. Jesus said to them in verse 24, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Now you need to understand the way that this is written. People aren't going to desire to enter until the door is shut. They're not going to want to enter the door until, or many are not going to want to enter the door until it's too late to where either death has, has brought them, uh, where death has shut the door, or where when God returns and the door is shut then. And that's when people are going to begin to knock. And that's when they're going to begin to want to be in. But I want you to write this down. If you're taking notes, you need to write this down. The kingdom of God is exclusive. It is exclusive. People, people get uptight when they hear terms like limited atonement. But folks, we need to face a reality is that the kingdom of God is limited to only those who confess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, calling on the name of the Lord to save them. That's it. That is, that is limited to those. Entrance is limited to those who call on the name of the Lord through faith. The word strive here, if y'all will indulge me for just a moment. The Greek, it's ag, 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 agnizomai. It's where we get our word agonize from. And no doubt to enter into this door means to enter into a life of suffering. I mean, it, God doesn't promise a life of ease. And so there's no doubt that implies this. But I believe that there is something else going on here that, that Luke is trying to emphasize, and it's this. Luke is making the point that there will be no casual entrance into the kingdom of God. You're not going to accidentally walk through the door. You're not going to accidentally slip in or slip in uh, unnoticed. There's only one door, and it's very narrow. And he's saying here to strive if you're going to enter into this kingdom, you are going to have to enter this kingdom with a desire and a passion to enter. The kingdom of God must be a priority to you. It must be something that's of value and of worth to you. When I was saved, it was a struggle. I was struggling with sin. I was, I was dealing with uh, under, trying to understand the, the identity of, of who God is. And there were so many things that were radically different from the things of this world. 
And it was with joy, but it was also with a seriousness and a sobriety that I entered into that faith through Jesus Christ. So entering into the kingdom of God is embracing Christ as Lord and it's giving up our desires for His desires. Entering the kingdom of God is an agonizing thing. It's serious. And that's what Luke is saying. And you need to get this. Luke is not saying that you are to work to enter your way into the kingdom of God. That's not what he's talking about through the word strive. He's not talking about working. You will never be able to do enough to earn your way or in any way to contribute to your salvation. Salvation is a free gift of God. In fact, I say this to people all the time. The only thing that you will ever contribute to your salvation is your sin. Your need to be saved is your sin. But salvation is a free gift of God. But discipleship will cost you everything. It is you giving up yourself and embracing God as all that is, that means, means all, that God means all to you. That He is your everything and that He has the preeminence. The word narrow, not only does it mean thin, it means undesirable. There's nothing about this door that looks attractive. The Bible makes it very clear that Jesus is the door. These are the analogies that Scripture gives us about identifying Christ. He's the door, and he's a narrow door, but he's not desirable. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they hated him. And there were many people who hated him. In fact, the Bible tells us in John that the world hates Jesus. And so what Luke, again, is showing us by the narrowness of this door is that not only is it thin, not only, not only is it limited in scope, but it's also undesirable. People aren't attracted, uh, enter the door just because they're attracted to it. Um, we have this idea that everybody's trying to bang on the door to get in. The world, let me, let me give you this picture the world is walking right past this door every single day, taking absolutely no notice to it whatsoever. They could care less. They don't want to know. And we have to understand that this is what Jesus is saying about the kingdom. That there will be so many people, the majority of people who will walk past this door and will not care one bit to walk through it. So we see that Jesus is not painting us a pretty picture here of this door. He's showing us a reality of it though. The door of the kingdom is narrow and Luke returns to this sense of urgency. It's a repeated theme that Luke has with urgency. So not only is the kingdom of God's door narrow, but the time that it's open is short. Look at what it says, verse 25 to 27. It says, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I, I, do, not, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, well, we, 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 we ate, and we drank in your presence and you, you taught us in our streets. 
Now remember the context, he's talking to Jews. And they were saying, you were, you were in our synagogues, we heard you teach, you were on our street, you were in Jerusalem. You, you were in Bethany. You were in the promised land. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Those who are left outside, notice this, they refer to Jesus as Lord all of a sudden. They refer to him as Lord, but he refers to them in this way. You, you, you might know me, but I, I don't know you. I don't know who you are. And then they're going to do this. They're going to remind God of who they are. Well, I'll tell you who I am. I was there when you were teaching and preaching in the synagogue. I was there on the street corner. I even had dinner with you. We even ate together. We broke bread together. Don't you remember me? I never knew you. He says that twice. He doesn't recognize them. They are not known to God. And we need to bring that into our own context today because the same thing will happen. Where there will be many in today's time throughout every generation who will do the same thing and perhaps even some of you here this morning sitting in the pews hearing me preach may, at, may find yourself standing on the other side of the door after it's shut, whether it's through death. And after death, the, you know, it's appointed and the man wants to die and then the judgment, the door shuts at death. Or the door shuts when Christ returns. And to find yourself on the other side of that door knocking, Lord, let, let me in. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't know you. But I'll tell you who I am. I was at church on the week on Sunday. I, I came to church, and I, when Brother Britt played, I sang. And when Brother Greg preached, I listened. I even took notes. I took the Lord's Supper. God, don't you remember me? And he says, I never knew you. I didn't know you. What a, what a chilling reality. Matthew says it similarly, but in a little bit of a different way of detail. Verse 21 of Matthew 7, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What's the will of the Father? He sent his son, y'all. He sent his son to die on a cross so that we would put our faith and trust in him, repenting of our sin and living our lives under his authority. That's what he says. He said, many, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. And then he says, on that day, that day, that day is the day when the door is shut. On that day when the door is shut, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? There's going to be preachers on the other side of the door when it's shut. Didn't we prophesy in your name, Lord? Didn't we do, uh, cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do many mighty works in your name? And then I will say to them, I never knew you. 
Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Not I once knew you. Not I knew you then, but I don't know you now because it's too late now. He says, I never knew you. The scriptures are given to us as a way of showing us, warning, and, and giving us uh, an urgency and, and knowing that, that there is an opportunity. But when the door is shut, on that day, no more opportunity. Those who are unknown to him are rejected. But, but, but let, me, let me give you this word of assurance to those who are known by God, listen to this. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. You think God cares about sin in your life? Absolutely He does. And it should be the mark of a believer, if you're truly in the faith, to want to live a life that pleases Him. To despise the sin that's within your life. And this is a terrifying reality that when the door shuts, those who stand outside stay outside. It never opens again. You know, I've been to a number of nurseries children's church and buildings and a lot of times they have pictures of Noah's Ark. Man, Noah's Ark just seemed like a happy, joyful experience. And they have pictures, always a little crammed boat with animals sticking out all the windows and everybody smiling. But you know that Noah got on that boat after all the animals and God shut the door. And the rains began to come, the floods came, and judgment was upon the earth because of its evil. And a true picture of the ark were people swimming in the water trying to stay afloat, banging on the ark, saying, open up and let me in. And it never opened. Yeah, we're probably not going to put that image on our nursery wall, but it's a sober thought. It's, a re- it's, it's, it's reminiscent of what we see Jesus saying here. Y'all, the warning is real. The urgency is real. The day is the day of salvation. The door is available now. Those who are on the outside, though, they will writhe in anguish. It says there in the text, in that place, there will be weeping in that place outside the door. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And and y'all, this picture here gives me chills. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. Let me ask you a question. What in the world could be worse than hell than to be able to get a preview of what's in heaven? To be able to see the blessing and the promises of God that you missed out on. There will be a perpetual remembrance of the gospel that you heard 
but you rejected it. You either rejected it through complacency, you either rejected it because you said, that's really not for me. That's just not my style. You know, I just don't believe. I'm gonna, I, like, I like Rob Bell's theology. Who are you going to listen to? Rob Bell or Christ? Well, I'll get, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll trust in the Lord after I'm done having some fun. Here's the thing. If that's your attitude, you'll never be done having fun. You'll never be ready. Today is the day. Luke doesn't leave us without hope. He's showing us these warnings. He's showing us the urgency. But then he gives us this other picture because there will be many who will enter and they will come from all over the world. He says here in verse 29, he says, people will come from the east and the west, the north and the south, and they will recline at table in the kingdom of God. There will be people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every language, every color, every ethnicity, every socioeconomic uh, demographic. There will be people from all over the world who will find the door and who will enter that door, who will desire Christ to be Lord in their life. There will be people all over, people in every single place. That's why the Bible tells us that in John's revelation around the throne of God is every nation, every tongue, and every tribe singing praises to God. Luke has already given us this imagery of the servants who recline at table. And the imagery is to show us perpetual rest. That the master is going to be the one serving the servant. He is going to provide for us in his kingdom a place of perpetual rest. Now this is, remember what I was telling you, there was the kingdom present. Here's now. Here's the pain and the suffering and the trials and the tribulations and the anguish we go through now. But one day there is the kingdom to come. And in that kingdom, those who are in Christ, those who are known of him will recline at table and there will be perpetual rest. In this place we will experience the splendor of heaven, a place where there's no more crying, no more pain, no more death, no more cancer, no more hurting, no more sorrow, but perpetual joy in the very presence of God. This is what he is saying to many people from all over the world who will enter that door. Our question is, will you be in that number? Will you be in that number? Because Northeast, Southwest includes those of us from this region. But, 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 Brother Greg, you just don't know me. I am so insignificant. Well, Jesus has a line for you. He says, and behold, some, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. <coughs> Before we make personal application, let's go back to our context. What was he pointing to? I believe he's pointing to what we just saw with the bent woman in the synagogue. The one that everybody, all the Pharisees, the leaders, the rulers of the synagogue, the religious people, the ones who looked down on this poor decrepit woman who probably was in that situation because of some sin in her life and God was just judging her. That was their smug attitude. They thought they were first. They thought we are deserving of heaven. We've done everything right. We are in the synagogue preaching and reading scripture. We are studying our prophets. We are Abraham's seed. We deserve 
God's kingdom. It's promised to me. Not that bent woman. Not her. What God is showing here, yeah, the one that everybody else looks down upon, that one. I'll take her. But everybody else, all the, the ones who thought they were deserving, they will not enter. But she will. There are many people who think that they deserve heaven. I've asked a lot of people this question. Why, why, would God, why should God let you into his heaven? And here's what people almost inevitably say it every single time. Well, I, I try to do my best. I, I feel like I've been pretty good, never been arrested. Uh, I don't, uh, you know, I don't do, you know, a lot of horrible things. I'm, I mean, I'm, I feel like I'm a pretty good person, to be honest with you. So, uh, yeah, so I'm going to go with that. You know what they just said? I'm going to go to heaven because I deserve to, I think. Those are the ones who think they're first. They'll be last. But then occasionally I'll say to somebody, hey, why do you think God should let you into heaven? He shouldn't. I don't, deserve, I don't deserve heaven. Man, if you knew the things I've done, I'm so awful. I don't deserve God's grace. I don't deserve what Christ did for me on the cross. I'm such a wretch. I deserve hell. So your question, what should God, what should, what if God asked me, why should I let you into my heaven? I'd say you shouldn't. The last, they'll be first. Where is your heart at right now? Do you hear the warning? Can you sense the urgency? And is there a desire in your heart to know Christ? Undeserving, sinner as you are, God's saying to you, if there's a desire within you to know Him, trust and believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Heavenly Father, I pray for the seriousness of this passage and message today to permeate in our hearts. That God, we would hear the warning and the urgency, but we would also see the blessed grace of God, that there would be people from all places, north, east, south, and west, Mississippi, north Mississippi, south Mississippi, <laughs> east and west Mississippi, all over the state, all over this nation, all over the world who will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and be convicted in their hearts that they need Christ as their Savior. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would hear the warnings just as Christ gave them, the urgency as they're presented to us, but also the invitation. Seek me now while I may be found. Lord, I pray that if someone here today is convicted in their hearts to know Christ, that today they would go through that door. The narrow door that's being opened to them by the preaching of the gospel. Something so insignificant. Something that the rest of the world mocks at. 
something that has everlasting effects. God, I pray for the salvation of your people. God, be gracious today. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.